Well, as we uh, get started this morning, we're going to be in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. So if you would grab a Bible and uh, open up there, it's uh, really helpful if you're able to look at this text with me as we walk through it and unpack it. Uh, and as you're looking for Colossians 1.15, oh, by the way, if you did not bring a Bible, every other chair should have a Bible underneath it, so you can just reach under there and grab one. Uh, but as you guys look for Colossians 1.15, I just want to kind of pregame a few ideas for you uh, that are going to be important for this text. The first is uh, how we read this particular text. You see, I think when we approach Colossians 1.15 through 23, we should read it and kind of hear an element of frustration in Paul's pen. Uh, I think that's because Paul is seeking to communicate something to us uh, which stretches the boundaries of the human imagination. He's trying to talk to us about something which human language cannot fully capture. And so he's at his wit's end. He's at the limits of language. He's doing all that he can do to try and communicate something to us uh, which is fundamentally impossible to do. In fact, I think of a hero of mine, John Calvin, who when writing about scripture, wrote this. For who is so devoid of intellect as to not understand that God, in so speaking, lisps with us as a nurse is wont to do with little children? Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of being God is as accommodate the knowledge of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper height. This passage in Calvin's writing is often referred to Calvin's baby talk view, the idea that when God communicates to us through the scriptures, he communicates truly and clearly, but he communicates about something which we, like babes, are fundamentally unable to grasp in its entirety. So he's talking to us about God in Christ in this passage, and that is incomprehensible. But what Paul says is still true and good and clear. And so I think Paul is frustrated as he tries with all his mind, with all his might, to put on the page words that are true and clear and encapsulate as much as possible. The second thing I think we need to understand as we get into this text has been pointed out by Drew over the past couple of weeks as he's unpacked the previous three paragraphs in Colossians. You see, in those paragraphs, Drew has pointed to the fact that Paul is writing against an aberrant theology called Gnosticism. And in our passage this morning, what we get is a full force repudiation of Gnosticism. For those of you who haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, we could summarize uh, the issues with the Gnostic theology with two primary ideas. First is that they valued the mind at the cost of the body. So mind and body were not equal, but the body was irrelevant and the mind was all that mattered. We're going to get into why that's an issue for Christian theology in this text. And the second thing to point out is that the Gnostics, in as much as they were a Christian heresy or a, a way of falsely believing Christianity, they thought that true salvation or true spirituality might have started with Jesus, but had to move beyond Jesus in order to get to its heart or its core or its height. And Paul wants to push back against that. 
and he wants to fight against that idea, and he does so with only the weapon of the supremacy of Christ. So he will not marshal any other defenses except for showing us in this passage who, in fact, Jesus is. And so we also should point out one last thing is that this passage is in a sense an answer to a question asked in the Mark series we were teaching before. For those of you who have been with us uh, going back a while, we were teaching through the book of Mark. We took a pause at Mark chapter 4. And in Mark 4.41, the disciples in the boat with Jesus witnessed Jesus calm a storm. And it says, And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? When Paul is at his wit's end trying to tell us about Jesus, that is the question he is trying to answer. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey this man? And so as we start into our text, it's important to keep these things in mind. What is Paul really doing here? So if you would pray with me one more time, we're going to get into Colossians 1.15. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word this morning. And we are awed as we have already sung about who Jesus is, as we have already confessed who Jesus is, and as we have already come before him as sinners. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that the meditations of our heart this morning, that the words of my mouth might be honoring your sight, edifying to all here, and glorifying to Christ. And so, Father, we pray uh, that you be with us as we unpack this text, and we thank you for it. We pray all these things in the name of your Son and our holy and precious Supreme Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I take this text to tell us three fundamental things about Jesus. First, that he, Christ, is supreme over all of creation. Second, that he is supreme over the church. And third, that in the gospel, he is supreme over you and over me. So let's unpack this text 
following that order. It's important as we get started to realize that this passage springs from last week's. That in effect, Paul writing to the Colossians gets carried away by the momentum of what he's writing. And in verse 13 of chapter 1, he, speaking of Jesus, says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it's critical, again, to recognize, as Drew pointed out last week, that our theological knowledge is vitally important to the Christian life. That the Christological confession that Jesus is the Lord of all is the essential foundation for all of discipleship. Paul wants the Colossians to experience the fullness of God in Christ. He wants them to experience the fullness of life as God has intended it. And as Paul thinks about the Colossians and their present state and this heresy coming in, he realizes that they are on the verge of losing the fullness of the Christian life, if not the Christian life itself, because they reach for theology which seems new and attractive to them. But in doing so, they have put themselves in danger. In reaching for something they see as higher, greater, more full, they have put at risk the very Christian life itself. Biblical scholar John Stott wrote of this passage that the reason for Paul's approach is that he well knows the Colossians are, willfully are not willfully unfaithful. It is not simply, or it is simply that they are young in faith with their convictions as yet unformed and immature. Because of this, the speciousness of the visitors' arguments has not been detected. It had not occurred to the Colossians that to welcome this new teaching was to be disloyal to the old. It seemed to them an exciting and fresh revelation of the truth, taking them on from Epaphras' beginnings. I think it's helpful to hear this from Dr. Scott or Stott because we, Santa Cruz Baptist Church, are a young church. And in our midst, myself included, are many who would say that we need to grow more in following Christ. That we have much progress to be made. And we as well hail from a culture which is regularly seduced by the new and the novel. Things that seem exciting and fresh can lead us astray. And so we fit into a classification that makes us very similar to the church at Colossae. And because we fit there, we are similar to the same kinds of errors. And so I think we need to be warned about such drift. And we need to hear what Paul has for us this morning, which is fundamentally the antidote to the poison of false theology. And the antidote goes like this. He is the image of the invisible God. To say that Christ is the image of the invisible God is to say that in him, the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. That as Paul says, what was invisible is now visible in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself states this clearly. This is not something that Paul made up. In John chapter 14, in verse 8, 
Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, comes to him and he says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Hear the faith in that. I don't need anything else. I just need to see the Father. Philip has a good heart in this moment. He sees clearly, yet he misses something vital. Look at Jesus' response. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but, to the, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Similarly, the author of the Hebrews, as he introduces his sermon, says that he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and that he upholds the universe by the will of his power. I love this concept of the radiance of God. You see, as it happens, Jesus and Paul do not come from a culture in which light or heat can be made by human invention. You see, the word radiance means light or heat emitted from a source. And if you think of a culture prior to electricity, prior to gas heaters, prior to all the things that we do for light and heat in our homes and in our church, you have to realize that there are only a few sources which light and heat can come from, and each of those sources, the light and heat comes from it because of what it is. Light and heat emits from fire because of what fire is. Jesus Christ is the radiance emitting from God because of who God is. His nature and his being is clearly displayed in Jesus by the fact of who the Father and who the Son are. Back to Colossians. Paul is getting into something similar here. Christ is the image of the invisible God. The word image could also be translated idol, which is interesting because this concept then ties all those who grew up in this culture back to the very origin of the narrative of Scripture, where in Genesis 1.27, Moses writes, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humanity, male and female, are designed to be living, moving, breathing images of God, idols of God. This is why the fourth commandment tells us that we should not make any graven images. Because in doing so, we create a false image of God. God has already created his image. And we could ask what this image or what this idol is for. You see, idols are materials or structures built in order to communicate about a deity or supreme being and to direct one's worship to that thing. So you look at an idol or an image of God, and that is supposed to tell you something about who God is and direct your worship to him. So man created as the image of God is intended in creation to as we look at each other and as creation looks at us, to tell each other about who God is. And then in doing so, we do not get the glory, but our, the worship that comes from the communication about God 
is directed back to God. That is what an image is for. But humanity failed in this task. This is what the biblical narrative tells us, that mankind falls and fails to image the character of God truly and completely. I should say that though we failed, the image in God's grace stays present. It's distorted, but it is not destructed. And we find that Christ, in his success, gives us a pathway to a renewed image. He tells us, in effect, how to be, again, a new humanity. This is one of the reasons why, here at Santa Cruz Baptist, we put such an emphasis on discipleship, on what it means to walk with and like Jesus. Because that is how we were always intended to live. And Paul goes on, and he tells us more than just the image, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, at this point, good reading is necessary. And I don't just mean like good Bible reading, but good reading in general. In order to understand any given text, whether it's Jane Austen, Charles Dickens, or whatever the current version of Twilight is, or the Bible, you need to enter into the world that the author creates in order to understand and communicate with it. And so what we see is that we need to be good readers here. We need to enter into Paul's world in order to see what he's getting at because poor reading has led many astray when it comes to this particular phrase. As of 2018, there were approximately 8.36 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world. Their formal doctrine declares that Jesus is the first and greatest of all of God's creatures. That would be a good line with the exception of one word, creatures. Jesus is the first and greatest of all of the things created by God, which is something reasonable to draw from the phrase firstborn unless you enter into Paul's world. And it seems to me that the Jehovah's Witnesses have read this poorly because they are willfully ignorant of how Paul understood the term firstborn. You see, firstborn was not tied inextricably to birth order for Paul. It could be separated. Firstborn is actually a title of inheritance. It could be won or lost given the father's favor. It could be used figuratively rather than literally. Consider a few passages. In Scripture, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Here Paul, or God, speaking through Moses, compares and contrasts the figurative firstborn son of Israel to the literal firstborn son of Pharaoh. Similarly, in Psalm 87, 27, the psalmist writing about God's covenant with David says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Now, if you know your Bible, this would be an odd thing to say about David because not only is he not the first king of Israel, not only is he not the first person to have the phrase firstborn applied to him in terms of God, he's not even the firstborn in his own family. He has older brothers. So what does it mean that Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation? 
It means simply this, that all creation belongs to Jesus. Take a moment and think about this. In American common law, there are five ways to come to own something. Five ways in which you can declare, that thing is mine. You can buy it, yay capitalism. You can make it, yay artists. You can maintain it at your own expense or time. You can be given it, or you can inherit it. If you read this passage carefully, you will see all five present there. Verse 15, firstborn, inheritance term. Verse 16 tells of Christ creating all things. Verse 16, again, tells us that it was made for him like a gift is made for somebody. Verse 17 tells us that he maintains and sustains all things. And verse 20 says that they were purchased by his blood to reconcile them to him. Jesus owns all in this world, visible or invisible. Similarly, Paul tells us that he created all these things from nothing, and that by his good pleasure, he keeps them together. I want you to feel the gravity of this claim. So I've, uh, I think I have a slide with a number on it. Is anybody good with numbers? Can anybody tell me what number this is? Cruz, you want to take a shot at it? Uh, there's not a word for this number. It's simply 1.33 times 10 to the 50th, and I'm not good with numbers, so I very much had to look this up. But the reason why this number is interesting for us today is this number is a low ball estimate by the Department of Energy's Jefferson Lab as what they believe are the entire number of atoms that make up our planet minus water and creatures like you, me, deer, dogs, all those kind of things. So if you just take the concrete things of the earth, core on outward to crust, that's the number of atoms necessary. Those exist right now, in this moment, held together because Christ desires them to, and that reason alone. That is supremacy. Without his active and ongoing sustaining of those atoms, the earth would disintegrate, and it boggles the mind to think of what that means, not just for our world, but for a constantly and consistently expanding universe. I don't think an author outside of scripture has put this better than the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, who said, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine! And quite honestly, the second thought that comes to my mind when I think about this after supremacy is simply the gravity and lunacy of sin. All things were created and are currently sustained by Christ. So too they were created for him. And yet in sin, we are in outward and explicit rebellion. In sin, we refuse to exist for Christ, the one who holds us together. Sin is in effect in this way, existential suicide, a rejection of the very life that keeps existence together. 
And at this point, Paul turns from a focus on Christ's sovereignty or supremacy over creation to a theme that will be important for the rest of the letter and to something that if we do not understand it correctly, I fear we will think is an anticlimax. He turns to the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Paul turns to the church and paints a picture of new creation. Paul draws our attention to this by mirroring the previous section with this one. You see, what we see in Colossians 1, 15 through 23, most scholars believe is actually a hymn that has verses and a rhythm and a beat and a tone and a tempo. And then Paul gets carried away by these two verses of the hymn and goes into a gospel riff on its basis. And so as we move into the second stanza of the hymn, we can see how they mirror. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. So too, Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church, meaning that he is in charge of the church, both universal and local, in the same way that he is in charge of all of creation. As I said in the beginning, our culture is given to seduction by the new or the next. But if Jesus is the head of the church, then we here at Santa Cruz Baptist have little room for innovation. Our doctrine better be at least 2,000 years old. And our practice better incorporate the question, does our head care how we worship? Does he care what we do when we gather together? If you ever wonder about the things that we do here, from call to worship to confession of sin to benediction at the end, we hope to be able to point to this for each of it, for all of it, because this tells us about Christ and what he desires, and he is our head. Jesus is as well the firstborn of all creation, and he is then the beginning the firstborn from the dead. Thus, we see that Paul believes in the resurrection as in the act of creation, Christ is supreme. That as Christ rules over creation because he made it and sustains it, so Christ rules over the church because it is full of people who have been resurrected by his power. And he is the firstborn from the dead. His firstbornness in the previous stanza is unpacked with the phrase, for by him all things were created. And his firstbornness from the dead is unpacked with the phrase that in everything he might be preeminent. And at this point, we see what you do when you write a song that you want to draw somebody's attention to a particular part. You see, you get a rhythm and a tone and a tempo, and then you break it. And at the dissonance, people start to pay attention. And they ask, what is happening? And the dissonance of this, where the tempo and the lines and the stanzas and the song breaks down is with this phrase. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here we see another phrase that we might need some help unpacking. To understand the author's intention, we have to linger here for a moment. What does it mean that all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ? Again, it boggles the mind to think about this. We might paraphrase it by saying, God in all his fullness has chosen to live in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Further, though, we should see this, the phrase delights. That he is pleased to live in human body. This is a mortal wound to that Gnostic theology, that heresy. See, remember, they said the mind is important, the body is irrelevant. But here we're told that God was pleased in his power, in his beauty, in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, in his justice, in his fullness to be embodied, to be incarnated. God feels no need nor desire to wash his hands of the human form. He takes it on and he maintains it and has done so willingly and joyfully. Why? I think it's because of the result. Paul writes, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pause. Let's slow down. Let's think for a minute about this. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set out before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Have you ever thought about that? For the joy set before him, he goes to the cross. You see, the cross is a logical imperative after the incarnation. Once Christ takes on human body, flesh, he has to go to the cross. And what we see here is that he does that for joy. Why? First, I think, because Christ's deepest longing, and this is said again and again in the Gospels, is to do the will of the Father. And second, what Paul gets at in our text is because he desires to reconcile all things that he has brought into being to himself. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that the peacemakers will be blessed. And here Paul tells us that the peacemaker of all peacemakers is Jesus. That he seeks to reconcile us to him. And I believe he does this not only because of the will of his father, but because of the reality of hell. He desires, as 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, that none should perish. He seeks peace by taking judgment for sins upon himself, by substituting his blood for ours, by sacrificing his life for ours. And Paul, feeling the momentum of this, is carried into an exposition of that salvation, of our salvation. And he begins by confronting the reality of how we stand before God. Verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Consider those first three words and phrases alienated, 
can also mean isolated, estranged, set apart from, cut off from, shunned. Hostile can mean at war with, in contention with, antagonistic to, opposed to. And the phrase, doers of evil, probably defines itself. But if we take a moment and pause and think, we can ask ourselves, prior to what we would consider our salvation, prior to what we would consider our relationship with Jesus beginning, did we see ourselves like that? Hostile, alienated, workers, doers of evil. It has been said that you cannot count yourself forgiven by the work of Christ on the cross unless you count yourself among the crowds standing at the cross shouting, crucify him. And if that's true, then we need to see ourselves as hostile and alienated, angry fists in the air, culpable of the greatest act of evil in human history in order to see ourselves as saved by the greatest act of grace and love and mercy and justice in all of history. This is fundamentally offensive to our world. We exist in a world that's best described by the philosophy of expressive individualism, which says that you get to define yourself and your reality simply by expressing it out loud that history and philosophy and theology and literature and science, whether chemistry, physics, or biology, have no sway on the truth. You are the arbiter of truth. Just simply express your truth. To that philosophy, the gospel stands in its path and says, no, there is an objective right and wrong. There is an objective truth about the way the world is and where the world came from and where the world is going to. And it comes from outside of you. And so if we see this, then I hope that we hear something really important here. And that's that the, the words hostile, alienated, and the phrase workers or doers of evil deeds is said in the perfect tense. And what I mean by that is the actual grammatical construction, the perfect tense, because the perfect tense communicates that something is done, finished, its effects have been dealt with, it is completed, meaning you were once those things, but rightly understood you are no longer. Why? Because you, if you are found in Christ, have been reconciled and presented to God, holy and blameless and above reproach. That is why Christ went to the cross. That is why Christ took on flesh. Notice what Paul has done here. What is the opposite of someone who is a known doer of evil? Is it not someone whose life could be described as above reproach? What is the opposite or the inverse of two entities at war? What do they need to solve their problem? Is it not reconciliation? What is the reverse of being set apart from God? Is it not being set apart for God? Which incidentally is the definition of the word 
holy. Do you see what's happening here? Paul is telling us that Jesus, that the results of Jesus' actions on behalf of those who turn to him, who are found in him, he's telling us, and we ought not miss it, that we can have our position before God reversed, that we have had our position before God reversed, that the past is forgotten, because when God looks at those in Christ, he simply sees Christ. And if that wasn't enough, Paul's going to take one more shot at the Gnostics on his way out of this passage. How did Jesus accomplish this reconciliation, this change of status for us? In his body of flesh. It would have been enough to say body. It would have been enough to say flesh. But Paul doubles down emphatically that Christ was able to achieve this because he took on humanity. He took on flesh itself. He took on a body. There's so much more we could say on this passage. And I fear that even if I had infinite time, I couldn't cover it all. But in this text, and while studying it, I was struck by the words of one commentator who wrote this. This passage, these statements are not relative. They are categorical, emphatic, and I dare say universal. And this is scandalous. So what does all of this mean, that if these things are true, not because we decide them, but because categorically, emphatically, and universally they are true about Jesus? In my missional community, we read Acts chapter 2, and this stood out to me as we were reading through it. Verse 37, now when they, the crowds hearing the apostles, heard, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Paul said to them, or Peter said to them, repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. My plea for some of you this morning is if anything I have said has made you question whether or not you have understood in complete or in part the gospel. If you've gotten anything wrong or if you've been misled by something new or the next thing, please, this morning, Talk to me or to Dustin or Ross or Drew. Talk to one of us. It is vitally important that we understand this. And while it's almost too obvious for those of us who are in Christ, who hear this passage, and we ask, what can we do to make Christ preeminent in our lives? to not just acknowledge that as some general truth, but actually live that out? What do we do to put Jesus first? We have to take stock of everything. 
preeminent in all things, means that Jesus holds the first place in our families, the first place in our marriages, the first place in our singleness, the first place in our professions, the first place in our mission and ministry, the first place in matters of intellect, first place in our time, first place in our love, first place in our conversations, in our pleasures, in our eating, in our play, in our athletics, in what we watch, in the music we take in, in the art we observe, and in the worship we give. Christ needs to be first in all things. And so we must seek him in faith and in truth, humbly on our knees in prayer with his word open. And we need stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which we, Santa Cruz Baptist Church, have been made ministers. Would you pray with me this morning?